and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Mark Hu and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Mark Hu, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, we are joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hello, everyone. Hello, Nigam. And also joining us is our resident GMP expert. Welcome back, David Valancourt from the GMP Collective. Great to be back and see you guys. Wonderful. And listener, we have a special guest joining us today, the VP of Laboratory Sciences at Garden Remedies, a vertically integrated operator in Massachusetts. Taking a break from the lab, please welcome Gene Ray. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Well, listener, we have a great show for you today. For our popular literature section, we're going to talk about what is stupidity and have you experienced it lately. We'll also talk about investors turning towards psychedelic healthcare healthcare companies in this growing area of the psychedelic industry. We'll talk about some potential activity in Michigan being perhaps the first state to legalize psychedelics. We'll talk about Amazon trying to solve their worker shortage by abolishing THC drug testing. We'll then go into rapid fire science. We'll talk about a report about the adverse effects of Ibogaine and talk about new research on getting high to cope with COVID-19. And we're going to end with a game. And it's going to be a new game that I am calling Don't Be a Square, where I'm going to read a poem and you, the audience, and my panelists will have to try and guess which substance the author was either talking about or was, was on while writing the work of art. All right. We'll be back in about 30 seconds. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So our first article is from Harper's Magazine, not to be confused with Harper's Bazaar, but the Harper's Magazine, and it is about stupidity. The, The title of the article is The Third Force by Garrett Kaiser, and it's on stupidity and transcendence. And a lot of things over time, their definitions change, how we apply them change. The the definition of insanity changes. And I started to think about things like when people say, oh, this makes you stupid or that person's stupid. What what do they really mean? And this article was really interesting to me because one of the things I realized is stupidity or being stupid doesn't mean that you're unintelligent or even uninformed. It's, It's actually sometimes defined as a loss of reality. And I thought that you know, given everything we're experiencing, um, you know, we might wonder about uh, what's happening with people's brains out there. And I don't think most people wake up in the morning, grin at themselves in the mirror and say, you know, today I'm going to torment an intellectual and then strangle an idea. You know, that I don't think that's really happening, but I think it's important. I always love definitions. And so, um, you know, David, I'm sure you encounter what you would call a lot of stupidity out there in the world. But has this article changed your view of or maybe given you some 
some food for thought of mind munchy about when we say when we talk about stupidity? Yeah, you know, geez, this is this is such a loaded article. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, it's good for thought provoking, so many purposes. But um, yeah, Jayan, you know, to your point, uh, let's think about this, right? In terms of what is stupidity, and as they define it, right? You know, denial, or as it goes into here, a denial of reality to the degree that one's own survival is imperiled. You know, too dumb to live, and it gets into you know gross stupidity, and you know how that invites negative consequences. And I mean, we could go all day in this, you know, what's the spectrum between stupidity and faith, um, which they actually describe as that being the opposite, Stu- you know, the opposite of stupidity is not intelligence, but faith. So, um, God, I, I just, I feel like there's a lot of content here that we could go on. And at the end of the day, you have to ask that question. Is it, is it willful? Is it just a lack of knowledge? Is it uninformed or is it stupidity? And there's a difference, right? And uh, I think we see plenty of stupidity in the world for sure. But we also have to look introspectively and recognize that we all kind of come with our own biases to um, being blind to blind to that reality. So I don't know. Take it from that. Absolutely, David. And, um, you know, Gene, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because this article, you know, as David said, is really packed with information. It talks about is stupidity uh, a psychological or social issue? Because it talks about how in groups, people tend to want to, you know, not be as open to other people's ideas or their experiences. But in, in, in reading this sort of what's called a modern day approach to the concept of stupidity, was there anything that surprised you out of the article? Or did it just like kind of confirm what you thought already? <laughs> I want to say it's the latter. It, it kind of confirmed like like what I thought, and and like David said, that is one of those things where it's like it it was it was a lot. It was uh kind of kept repeating itself in like uh, a lot of different examples. It's like okay, this is stupid, right? And and wh- one of my favorite lines was that um how how you were saying that how how ironic that we use slow as a synonym for stupid, and and like that's that's a uh, like me coming from from Tennessee, like I, I heard a lot of that. Uh, people saying like, oh, this person is slow or something like that. And it's because like their ideals or ideologies haven't like manifest perfectly. Right. And um, I don't know, it was, it was unique. It, it was unique. And I, and I really think that it's uh, a lot of people get distracted a lot about this age of information right now and kind of just put their own, as David said, like their own faith behind it. Right. So, um, so yeah, it, it kind of really just confirmed what, what I was already assuming. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And, and I, I agree with that. And the other thing that struck me about the article was this conversation about it starts off as an, uh, un, an unwillingness to learn or say, learn what another person's perspective is and becomes an inability to learn. And so it's like it's acquired like a tan <laughs> or a microwave. <laughs> it's something people acquire over time. It's not natural. But you know, I know we're, we mostly talk about cannabis and psychedelics. So, so Nigam, I'm hoping you can connect this article to, uh, <laughs> to the cannabis and psychedelic space. Totally. So I think, you know, as I was reading through this, it I was thinking through it in that context, right? So I think we see a lot of 
like less than desirable or less than scientifically backed up things. Uh, and I mean, it's been rampant in cannabis. Psychedelics, we're having this because of the medicalization and a lot of the money coming into it. Um, I shouldn't say the money thing, actually, because of the medicalization, there is some more it's not as quite as bad as it was like with cannabis, just like running rampant and like outside of the federal law and outside of like the Western medicalization system and all this. So um, I think just a high level takeaway for me was to just to like keep our eyes open on, on what's happening around us and to just, you know, be critical, think through things, um, watch who you affiliate with, uh, you know what do they say? What do they think? How do how do they operate? Um, so th- that was kind of my takeaway. I mean, I think we all all four of us, you know, sitting around this table, we we've been walking around in this for a while. So, um, but for the newbies out there, read the article. Look out, you know, look out for those people who who uh, who don't know how to think and are going to lead you astray. Yeah, a- absolutely, Nigam. And and before we go into the next study, uh, David, would you like to follow up? Yeah, you know, one, one other thing that kind of came to mind just hearing Gene and, and Nigam there is in regards to, you know, back to the idea of critical thinking, right? And being aware, you know, I live uh, down south of Denver out in Colorado Springs and there's the common reference to the Boulder bubble. And, you know, is that this group think where can stupidity happen on every end of the spectrum, even on, you know, call it the intellectual, you know, with the university there and whatnot, and a lot of, you know, tech industry, but let's, let's be aware and recognize that it's just not a black and white world we live in. And let's think critically it's it, but it's challenging too, right. In terms of the, as Nigam was mentioning, the age of information, how do you know what to trust? How do you, you have so much time in the day information is just blasted at us. So you end up having to just go with, you know, well, I hang out with Nigam and Jehan. So whatever they say, I'm just going to align with. And, you know, it's easier to do that than be like, well, I take six hours to challenge everything that I hear. There's only 24 hours in a day. So it's, it's, a, it's a good challenging, but thought provoking article. And I think it just raises our awareness um, with everything, whether it's, you know, back to psychedelics and cannabis and legalization and, and all these matters, you just have to think critically and be open-minded. Absolutely. And I really like the idea the article talks about, about Always keep open your ability and your openness to learn new things because otherwise you you become the definition of stupidity. And speaking of learning, I think it's a great transition to our next article, which is from fortune.com, from Fortune Magazine. And it's on why investors are turning towards psychedelic healthcare companies. And, you know, much like the cannabis industry was once thought of as a risky investment. It's now one of the fastest growing investment opportunities uh, on the planet, potentially, and outperforming some sectors of the market. And we're talking about licensed cannabis operators, not just like every old website and gas station that sells a CBD product or THC isomer. We're talking about a very specific <laughs> lane when it comes to what's, what's considered low risk or less risky investment. But we're also seeing this similar trajectory from the psychedelic industry. And, you know, Gene, you're, you're kind of like right in there, you, you know, working in the lab at a vertically integrated facility, one of the, the larger in the country. So, you know, 
if you could, uh, I mean, I guess you're, you're really hoping that psychedelics can learn from cannabis. I mean, you read these articles and everyone's like, oh, cannabis had this trajectory. Everyone learned from it. Let's apply it to psychedelics. I mean, when you read this type of stuff, you know, do you think this, this, this commentary from Fortune got it on the head or do you think they're missing some stuff here? Um, I'm actually kind of on the fence because as, as we all know, like with, uh, with the cannabis industry, like all these investors are coming in and it's like, they're just looking at ROI. It's like, how, how, how's the, uh, what's the best way I can like really get a, like the best return on my investment. Right. And, and, and what the psychedelic industry from, from my perspective is that is learning a lot of the growing pains and bumps and bruises of the cannabis mm-hmm. industry and trying to figure out like, what's the best way to cultivate it and isolate it and everything and, and put it in any and everything. Uh, and so that that's one of the main things. But once we get to that point, then we have to start actually looking at the the safety, the efficacy. There's so many different things we have to kind of like realize. And the cannabis industry, we're still still like an infant, really. So it's like it's a lot of stuff that we're still learning in the cannabis industry that I'm sure the psychedelic industry would definitely learn from our mistakes, right? So that that's kind of my thoughts. I'm really on, on the fence about it, but like they're they're really hitting the nail on the head in terms of. Uh, what what the investors are really looking at at this point and it's and it's a lot of information absolutely i think that's a great point you make about trying to put it in everything because it does seem like that has happened with any sort of cannabis ingredient that's even remotely marketable will will get put into a product and i'm kind of glad that hasn't happened for psychedelics yet because you know my, my grandma was cooking a a meal, I'd be like, wait, where'd you get these mushrooms from? Where'd you get this mushroom sauce? Uh, but you know, you might have to do that with hemp because you don't know if someone's getting like hemp protein or hemp with CBD. Maybe it has Delta A in it. Like the labeling stuff is is really kind of you know making my you know my head spin a little bit when we, when we compare them. But um, Nigam, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on this article, and you know, in terms of uh, you know. Do you you know? Yeah, I read this 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 part in this article about Thai life sciences, and it just it seems weird that oh yeah they have a billionaire join and now it's valued at two point six million dollars and I'm just like oh billion billion two point six billion dollars it's like well do they just does their value just increase because a billionaire joined the board <laughs> is that how it works I'm um, I'm unclear on this mechanism because like Gene said like everyone's looking at cannabis ROI no one's selling prepackaged labeled mushrooms out of a licensed storefront where's where's the ROI here um, so I'm just kind of confused about all these psychedelic unicorns that are popping up in the market so okay so um, wow like a lot of, lot of topics there I'm going to I'm gonna try I'm gonna digest and like respond to a couple of them so the two that I choose is where is the ROI coming from and let me just start there. So, um, oh wow. Okay, I had that 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 pause was just like my brain spinning. So, um, there are a few places it's coming from. So, in the case of a Thai, they have their fingers in a lot of things. So, a Thai is like a is like an incubator of sorts. Like they are funding other 
companies in the psychedelic space. So if you go to the Thai website, you look at their portfolio, I think they have like 15 companies, everything from uh, novel drug molecules in the psychedelic space, both psychoactive and non-psychoactive, to healthcare platforms and electronic health record systems, to... Um, you know, digging up old molecules and deuterating them and, and doing this and that to uh, like the actual clinics and this and that. I, I'm kind of like, you know, just rattling things off. I'm not reading it off the Atai site. But so that's what they're doing. Now, the question that you're saying is, where does the ROI come from? And this is the, the tricky part. So will... Any of those, so let's say they have five or seven um, drug development companies in their portfolio. Are any of those companies going to get a drug through the FDA pipeline? And if so, is that drug going to be heavily utilized? And if so, what's the profitability to the company that created it? And if so, what's the profitability to the funder like a tie? So that's kind of a long chain. So I kind of am outlining how return on investment would go up the chain. But the question is yet to be seen. Will there be a return on investment? We don't know. Um, Because maybe those molecules aren't good. Or maybe those methods of electronic tracking of healthcare and psychedelics is not good. Or maybe it's great. I don't know. So Jayhan, I want to address another thing that you brought up. So if it's not the traditional return on investment that investors would seek and understand based on a fundamental business level that you would learn in like business school 101, um, why is all this money coming in? Like you're saying. So I think there's two things. One is that it, it's it's a trend, right? It's like any trend. So people want to be on the bandwagon people nobody okay let me not say it like that but most oh, no people, i think you should say it like that oh, okay clear. so okay so <laughs> okay well thank you uh moderator jayhan i'll just say what i was gonna say nobody likes antidepressants nobody's like out here saying i want to take an ssri or in in why is that it's because the dosing is hard to get right because even when you get the dosing right they don't work for a lot of people like i think the Stat current stat is like 30% of people get the desired effect from it. So um people want to believe that medicalized psychedelics are gonna work. People want to believe that at least one of these portfolio companies from Matai is gonna hit one out of the park and that's gonna be the non-Prozac Prozac for the next 30 years or whatever. So um the belief is a big thing, and people just the trend and people wanting it to be real. Um, the other thing is there it's getting kind of the same bucket that when you have institutional in, investors, when you have big money, you know, billionaires coming into it, that gives people confidence. They say, okay, well, someone who's worth a billion dollars is going to throw their hat in the ring. Then that gives the mom and pop investors confidence. And then Stock prices just keep going up and up and up and up, you know? So uh, I last thing I'll say, I feel like I've been talking forever, but um, last thing I'll say on, on a recent episode, uh, Jayhan, I had, I had proposed this kind of funny idea that we could create like a, a tracker over time. I mean, we're 
I'm not going to do this, but somebody, this would be like a cool student for like an econ or a cool project for like an econ grad student would be go look at all these psychedelics companies, some of the cannabis companies, look in the investment dollars coming in and just make a table to track all the money coming in and investments being spent on R and D and then track it over one, five, 10 and 20 years and see what is the ROI? Like, what is the answer to your question, Jahan? I don't know, but um, I would happily mentor an econ grad student through tracking it. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. And so, David, I want to go to you next about this article. And my kind of question is, is this an article, you know, if I had some, a pile of money and I'm like, I need to do something with it. And I read this article, should it guide uh, my 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 growth of investment and I should tack it on my wall or should I shred it and put it in the compost bin and use it for like, you know, growing mushrooms versus trying to grow actual mushrooms off of the compost from this article or use it to inform my investments. Like, you know, people see this stuff in fortune. They're like, Oh, fortune's reputable. I mean, they have all these advertisers. I like, uh, you know, they write about current topics, you know, so is this for the header or the shredder, David? Are you in my head, John? Because you know, I think there's a there's a couple answers to that question. In terms of psychedelics, I think uh, first let me just thank Nigam for uh, taking an article that I would I would argue is misleading, especially at the beginning, and actually providing some good context in terms of let's actually think critically about you know. R&D costs and you know looking at that as a return on investment and how where folks are putting their money at these companies that are investing in and kind of diving into you know at high life sciences and whatnot and really giving a bigger picture there because beyond that you know the first link that I looked at uh, you know it's like oh yeah this is is this happening going just like the cannabis sector it's up thirty five percent you know the outperforming the broader market this year well the fund that you look at when you look at the cannabis stocks um, it's the shredder is the answer. Like, look at the the trajectory. Look at you know the trend of uh, I think it was alternative harvest uh, electronic trading uh, electronic trading funds, and they talk about this outperforming the market in the last year. Well, sure, when August of last year was the second lowest value of the of that stock uh, fund, uh, short of right at the height of the pandemic or uh, you know, right at the initiation of the pandemic in March. Yeah, it is up quite a bit. But what's the last three-year trend going from what forty dollars down to sixteen? Um, is that going to turn around and turn into some real investment over the last three years? The suggestion and the data has been no. So if we look at that on a you know, not cherry picking and looking at a bigger picture, I hope that the psychedelic industry does not go this way. And I think for many reasons that you know Jahan was kind of, or Nigam was trying uh, kind of alluding to, it won't. I think we will, as Gene was saying, like learn from a lot of the challenges of the cannabis industry of trying to do everything, you know, throwing money at it without really understanding what the market is and what it's going to look at, look like. And uh, hopefully, we'll have a better informed, um, you know, marketplace and taking a more medical approach. Uh, I see having a lot more dividends. So I'm, I'm very hopeful for the psychedelic industry for lots of reasons that I know we've talked about and you guys have talked about on this, um, on this podcast over the last uh, year now, I believe, which is amazing uh, coming up. And yeah, so just the cherry picking of the data was a little, little challenging there. So beyond Good. that, you know, maybe the shredder, but psychedelics, I don't know, be smart. Um- you know, thank you, David. And you, you know, you said something that really resonated with me, and that was marketplace. Where where is the marketplace for psychedelics? And I think that this 
ties in nicely with the third article we want to discuss entitled, New Bill Would Make Michigan First State to Legalize Recreational Psychedelics. It's from a website I don't normally read stuff from, but uh, I thought the author did an all right job. So it's from cbdtesters.co. And of course, uh, please ignore and do not click on the giant red mauve banner that says, click here for free Delta-8 THC samples. We do not endorse anyone getting free synthetic drugs on the internet. But the text of the article was very interesting um, if you follow the link through the show notes. And you know, I got to wonder about you know this nigam a little bit. When we think about marketplace, we think of ROI, we think of companies. I mean, there, there isn't even a marketplace really for these. There is, but there isn't a market. It, it, there's a market there, but you might not have seen it because it's underground, quote unquote. But you know, so so for me, it's it's hard to it's it's hard to wrap my head around this because even this legislation, this bill that's being proposed, wouldn't set up a commercial marketplace, and that worked really well for the hemp farm bill. No, you can grow it and extract it, but no commercial marketing. It, it worked out so well when there was this that great enforcement fall through with the bill. But uh, Nigam, you know, hot on the heels of that article from Forbes about psychedelic stocks, now looking into. Oh right, right. We have to be reminded that no one has <laughs> legalized psychedelics yet. What does this mean for companies? What What is your sort of like response to this? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to say two things, and I'll try to talk less long than last time. One is that I, I'm going to take from Dave here. Like Dave was just saying about the prior article about it being misleading. That's how I feel about this article because I saw the headline. I think I actually sent you this article, Jayhan. Like I'm the one who saw the headline and like submitted it for consideration for the show, right? And then I'm like actually reading it after the fact, and. The headline doesn't, it's it's not the same as the truth. So uh, let me just read this. New bill would make Michigan first state to legalize recreational psychedelics. Well, okay, let's talk definitions and terms. Okay, so criminal, um, illegal, decriminal, decriminalized, legal, recreational, commercial, Right. So what do all these terms mean? So Jehan, as you said, it's not commercial and there's no marketplace. So is that legal? Okay, so so I'm almost getting confusing. Let me back it up. So what this bill says is it's in essence a decrim. It's it's a thorough decrim bill. They're saying that for entheogenic substances, which to clarify does not include LSD, does not include MDMA, does not include 2CB, does not include a bunch of other drugs I could rattle off if we had five hours. Um, but so for mushrooms, for you know cacti, if you want to take 10 years to grow San Pedro in your house or in your yard or whatever, in your greenhouse in Michigan, sure. So they're saying you can grow mushrooms, you can grow San Pedro in Michigan. And you can take it yourself or you can gift it to your friend or your neighbor. That's great. But that's not recreational. That's not a marketplace. That's not legalization. That is decrim with a gifting law, which is great. I'm happy about decrim and gifting. I, I think the gifting is should be mandatory with decrim because otherwise you get all these ambiguities. But this article is misleading. 
there's no recreational marketplace. There's no dispensary. There's no state regulation. The closest thing that we have is Oregon, which is... uh, So they decrimmed all drugs. They also are leading into 2023 setting up a system for state-sanctioned and regulated therapeutic use of psilocybin. Now, that is going to be a commercial operation for that substance. And they have uh, advisory board uh, or committees putting all the laws together. And they have people vying for the licenses. And there's going to be a commercial enterprise around that. But that's not what's happening in Michigan. And... um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the Michigan thing is a little, little interesting. If you read this bill, the uh, Senate Bill six thirty one, you you're first reading it, you get excited. You're like, oh, the people of Michigan, they're gonna enact something. What is it? What is it? And then you're like, oh, if I have a thousand grams of any mixture containing Schedule One or Schedule Two substances, I could still go to jail for life. But in that same bill, you're allowed to have forty five kilos of a cannabis extract. And it starts to get a little, a little um, difficult to follow because they do allow money or valuable consideration, uh, but this does not um, include a reasonable fee for counseling, spiritual guidance, or related service. And that is indeed a direct quote from this proposed bill. And I think that um, for a decrim bill, it's still pretty scary to see. Um, mandatory minimum type limits. That's not exactly what it is. It's not a mandatory minimum, but again, it's um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's a little odd to to see this in there. Um, you know, Gene, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the bill, but you know, the article. You know, it's always nice to see CBD companies branching out into other areas. But when you took a look at the psychedelic article, do you think they did a good job balancing it? Were there some things that surprised you? Um, you know, is this just more of the same hype about psychedelics? Do you think this is going to go the same way as like hemp CBD, where they're going to be like no commercial market, then everyone's selling like psilocybin beverages? <laughs> yeah, I, I believe it's going to be something like this. And and like like Negan was saying that it is misleading because it's upon reading this, it's like oh man, like so Michigan wants to be the mecca of psychedelics, like Colorado is to cannabis, and but that's what the article is trying to present, but when you read and really digest it's okay this is not what this is at all and and it's pretty much like consistently stating how uh with with all these psychedelics is that like all right we're gonna do it this whole gifting law and then we already seen in the cannabis industry how that's super convoluted and whatnot it's like hey let me just give you this 50 dollar water bottle with the gift of cannabis really quick and it's like and it, and it's, it gets very convoluted so i can see how that's going to kind of be one of those uh interesting nuances in the psychedelic industries and um and then as you mentioned like lab testing so like it's it it gets it gets very very difficult like and we're still dealing with this right and um and then so I think I think what this article is just really just trying to say is that like hey like this is a possibility right this this is what what may be happening so it's like let's learn from everything that we've been what we have learned from the cannabis entry so far but like let's not get too excited michigan or whatnot because we still have so many other things that we still need to learn from this however make sure that you become a counselor so because you can actually get money from this or whatnot mm. so you can become a consultant on how to on how to grow and cultivate but there's no real marketplace for it 
So, so like a lot of this article just is actually really confusing to me. Like when when I uh, when I read and try to digest it, because at first I got excited. So that's, <laughs> that, yeah. that's that's pretty much my take on it, David. I kind of want I wanted to jump to you. I mean, it seems in this day and age, with so much available to regulators um, and, and business operators, to put a program in this without guardrails for product safety. Um, you know, I didn't see anything in this bill about if you're going to distribute mushrooms, even under a gifting policy. You know, you have to follow basic principles. Um, it just seemed like go pick them off of a cow patty and pop them right in your mouth. Like it didn't really seem to, there didn't seem to be really any sort of safety guidance. I, how do you respond yeah. to that? Yeah, you know, I think I know that's one of the challenges. You know, there's kind of that pro con of you know enable you know not prohibiting you know home grows home cultivations etc you know small gifting programs but at the same time those unintended consequences that we've seen all too common again back in the cannabis industry and uh, how do we balance that with the safety profile and you know you, you, ultimately you take a risk based approach right in terms of how much product can Jehan really grow and sell so when you um, grow and ground up the morels and the shiitakes with um, your you know psychedelic mushrooms and uh, you know, hopefully not but if that happens and or you haven't looked at you know the risk of the pathogens because of your lack of you know cleanliness and awareness um, are you going to affect you know ten people or you know ten thousand people? There, there's certainly that balance in terms of how much oversight we need. That that argument can be made, but at the same time, there's got to be some sort of basic framework. And uh, I definitely agree. Back to this article is fairly misleading, and I think that we can do better in terms of seeing how. Back to even the last article, can we learn from the cannabis industry and have a you know reasonable framework? To ensure that there's some safeguards in place, because we're still at a place when, and where um, we don't want these unintended consequences, and I fear that we can. I don't want to be the naysayer and uh, you know just be part of this like let's tear this article apart, but <clears throat> let's think about how you know unintended consequences can occur when you know the first negative report happens. Uh, because of a marketplace like this, and does that just enable people to jump on the bandwagon? And be like, we can't do that. Let's go back to schedule one and like forget descheduling and you know <laughs> giving giving opportunities for this. This is dangerous, and it's pharma or bust. Like we need to be careful. We don't want that to um, creep back up and take us by surprise. So yeah, I, I love what you said, David, about unintended consequences. And get everyone talks about. Like it just feels like some catchphrase people are saying because they're stupid. They're like, "Oh yeah, we're going to learn from the cannabis industry," and and I'm like, "Well, what? Where are the employment protections? Where are the consumer protections? Where where is the mandatory education initiatives so that people can learn about this of all ages? They can get job tra- like wh- where are the university courses? Wh- where are all this stuff that the cannabis industry is now having to play catch up with because they didn't have that guidance? And you know, and I think. It, it transitions well to our next article about Amazon needs more drivers for the holidays. Enter pot smokers. You know, this is an unintended consequence of cannabis regulation. And we're even talking about medical cannabis. You could lose your job, lose your kids. Or, you know, child protective services could get called if someone happens to smell weed outside your house. Uh, these are unintended consequences. Oops, we gave you illegal medicine, but if anyone knows you're using it, like there could be some some really dire s- circumstances you could find yourself in, and some of that continues today now to a varying degree across jurisdictions. And you know, I've been 
in the cannabis space so long that I remember being a patient and like driving down the freeway and going from being within a legal limit to not being in a legal limit in the same state because different counties had different limits on products, possession. Like one was like, you can have one gram a day. And otherwise we're like, you can have six ounces. It's like, well, I see, I guess I'm going to drive around that County. So I don't get busted if I get pulled over. Um, and I like, I, I read this stuff about Amazon and, you, and and it almost like, it almost doesn't matter when a big company, when a billion dollar group gets involved. Cause they're like, you know what? We're just not going to we're not going to do the drug testing. And David, we were just talking about safety. So I'm going to give you the first crack at the Amazon hiring more people. Is this is this the next great gig for seasonal work for cannabis users? <laughs> or is this or is this a permanent fix to give Amazon just like a massive one over on like you UP, you know, you the USPS and UPS and FedEx who may not hire people who use cannabis products, right? Like I gotta wonder. This might is this just a, is this a strategic business move or is this a temporary fix for the holidays? As I look outside and literally <laughs> just saw an Amazon you know van drive past my house, um, you you're, you're, you know, kind of brought me to think back to you know the FedEx and UPS trucks and uh, you know the the postal service. And I think there's a really um, without going down that rabbit hole of a play there. I mean, Bezos, for as much as we love and hate him, is a uh, has done some really uh, very intelligent things. I guess you could argue, right, or non stupid things. However, we want to word that, right. Um, in terms of you know growing this behemoth uh, monster, and I, I'm careful to try to give him too much credit and promote the Amazon model for so many reasons, but I um, I'd like to take the perspective of let's leverage what he's done and be like this is just this just needs to happen in terms of cannabis use. Okay, so I smoked a joint two days ago or a week ago, and now I test positive, but somebody did an eight ball the other night and of you know cocaine and. No big deal. It's cleared in your system because it doesn't actually build up in your your fat tissue, right? So, I think yeah. this is you know I was even trying to do some research in terms of how does Canada do it because they legalized cannabis in 2018, right? And they actually pretty much almost not outright banned, but drug testing is not common except for like airline pilots and kind of like life critical operations. So, I think this will hopefully help change the stigma of, oh, you, you need to get drug tested to get this 13 or $17 an hour job. But like, come on, guys. So in that aspect, I'm hopeful that this will start a trend. Uh, excellent. You know, and I got to say, David, that guy doing the eight ball, I think he was tailgating me on the parkway the other day. Like, <laughs> you, it's, it's, and, and that's another thing that comes up was like the liability from people driving and stuff like that. And, and you know, Gene, I want to ask you a little bit about this because, you know, you're... You're you're at a big company that works with cannabis. There's probably you know it's legal in your state where you're working, and then this is an issue that you know lots of companies face in a state where cannabis is legal. So you know, do you you know in response to David's comments, do you think this is a trend for the future, or do you think this is just like a band aid solution for a, a giant corporation, or you know, is this a sign of things to come? I hope is uh, a trend for the future. I, I will hope uh, because pretty much like what Dave was saying is that like, so someone can easily do an eight ball and, and be fine or tailgate, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but like, uh, but, but the fact that you still have to kind of go through all these nuances and get tested for cannabis and you, you fail that test and it's like, okay, well I can't get that job. And, and then you have to like settle for something else. And it's like, 
but some people actually need it for medical reasons. And you're just going to like, just stop that. Like they're not testing for alcohol. Like someone, someone could have just easily just like took a shot of uh, some nice, nice Tennessee whiskey and they're not testing for that. Right. And so like, and they're driving this in pairs. So it's like, I, I, I believe it's like, as this gets trendier, is one of those things where I know like uh police force or whatnot still trying to figure out ways to how uh how to test for people being impaired while they're driving. So like they've already done that with alcohol. And I know that it's going to be kind of difficult to do it with cannabis and other drugs because once cannabis kind of becomes that thing where people are like, well, we're not testing for this again, but it's like you still want to be able to uh test and regulate drivers uh that that may be impaired because it's like don't bait, don't smoke, like what like why are you driving? It's like still at the at the end of the day, still like not safe, right? So, um, so so I hope that as this becomes trendier and more companies deal with this, it will get to a point where we're dealing with other like safety measures to make sure people are not impaired while they're driving. But I I really I really hope that in terms of uh, testing, uh, if we kind of go into that direction, because I mean like when I first started working here and people asking like oh. Uh, when we we're hiring people, it was like, "Oh, you guys test for cannabis use." I was like, "No, we we do we, we don't." It's like it's a, it's a cannabis facility. It's like we, we don't we don't test for that. And people were surprised, and it's like because I've been in this space for so long, I'm like, "Oh yeah, you're right." Like that is it is a stigma that most people will test for it, but like we don't do that. So like as other companies start to uh, adapt this uh, this trend, we're we're heading in a better direction, and like I hope at least. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And again, I think to your point as well, it's like we're not so much advocating that like testing for cannabis use. It could have happened a month ago, it could have happened a week ago, where other substances get out of your body real fast. But the, the, the issue is, is like you said, someone could drink alcohol and then hop on an Amazon thing and drive and not worry about a, a, a drug test per se, unless they get pulled over by the cops and they catch them within a very narrow window of time. But I think the point is whether you're you're high, you're low, you're sleepy, whatever. Uh, if you're impaired on anything or because of any reasons, that's the issue uh, and not the drug. And, and I, that was one of the things I feel like I distilled out of this article from what you're saying. And, and Nigam, I, I guess you know, for, for an article from greenentrepreneur.com, um, I thought it was pretty good. How, how did you feel about... Uh, their use of statistics, their description. Do you think they they missed it, or do you think they hit it on the head this time? Well, the I mean, the article's pretty short. Um, I I think uh, I'm going to do that thing, Jayhan. You always give us the option to like not answer your question. I'm going to say something uh, different. So I just have two comments on this. One is uh, I think Gene and and um, Dave and you, Jayhan. I think you guys did great. I don't need to say too much, but two comments. One is, I've always kind of had a pet peeve about this where nobody's testing for Xanax. Nobody's testing for all these other, you know, highly prescribed um, drugs that cause impairment. So it's stigma, right? And then the other thing that that leads us to is so if we can remove the stigma, Jayhan, it's exactly what you were saying. It's about impairment. It's not about, did you consume cannabis? Did you consume alcohol? Did you consume Xanax? Did you consume an entheogenic substance? It's about, are you impaired and are you endangering people? 
so uh, I'd like to guide listeners to some really great resources. So friend of the show, attorney Rod Kite, uh, Jahan and Rod put out a uh, peer-reviewed paper like a year or 18 months ago about this topic. And then uh, Rod and myself did a seminar. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. We'll put the links in the show notes if people want to learn about impairment. Um, and Rod champions this concept of gauge impairment. That's yeah. it. So I, I, that's my view. I, I kind of am with Rod on that. Uh, absolutely negative. I'm so glad you mentioned that article. I have a little PTSD from that because I, I was pulled in as an expert witness, as I, as I told you about earlier this year, on an employment case. And it was on cannabis testing. And they're trying to say this guy had any cannabis in his system and meant he was impaired. And this guy's like a carpenter, shows up and builds desks or whatever. And and they brought in that article as an evidence. They got cross-examined and it's really funny when um, you know a lawyer brings an article you wrote and tries to cherry pick a sentence out of your article, and then he cuts off the sentence and you finish the sentence for him. But yeah, they were really trying to pigeon like you, you, you can say it. You don't know that he was, but you also don't know that he wasn't impaired at the time. Um, but I think that was the the issue is when you look at a blood test or a urine test, you can't say with cannabinoids that that person is high. Oh, it's at this level. They're impaired. It's it's not really like alcohol per se. And the same tests we use for alcohol impairment, the the whole, being able to follow a light and walk a straight line, um, and those similar tests, they actually have a higher reliability than just about anything else at detecting impairment. They they're very reliable. Um, and and drug detection should at best be used as secondary confirmation. Um, but I think we have to think about a lot of other factors when it comes to that. So hopefully within sensible guidelines you know where i i certainly hope that my next amazon delivery if i ever order from amazon again the guy isn't like smoking and drops a package off at the neighbor's house um because i they you know they're not allowing i mean how many packages have i not received and they haven't allowed cannabis use like i don't know is that going to get better or worse (laughs) but i gotta say i'm not too worried about the delivery time and if it's going to arrive because there's already so many errors with that but uh, so we're going to wrap up that package of a discussion. Um, and so that's it for our popular literature coverage. And we'll be right back after a short break with Rapid Fire Science. Where we'll discuss some effects of Ibogaine as well as a study on getting high to cope with COVID-19. we're back. Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing commentary and a little discussion about peer-reviewed scientific articles. And our first article is about Ibogaine called Dark Classics in Chemical Neuroscience. And it's all about Ibogaine. So much like many other things that cause hallucinations and impairment and have a bit of interesting effects on human physiology, they've been used for thousands of years. And Ibogaine is being touted again in the psychedelics as this potential product that can reduce opioid use, could 
help cure or treat symptoms of trauma. But Dave, uh, what is Ibogaine and can I buy it now? Uh, it seems like a really promising treatment. What's the status here? So my understanding of Ibogaine, well, not my understanding, but what Ibogaine is, right? It, it's extracted from a uh, West African plant. Um, it's been used for quite a while. So this is, you know, follow a lot of psychedelics in history that are, you know, naturally, you know, plant derived and uh, follows the same path. And, um, you know, similar to a lot of other uh, drugs in my side of the cannabis industry where I you know, focus most of my time. Um, one thing that I find really interesting here again is just another parallel in terms of it was used medically. It was, a, it was a actually marketed in France for over 40 years uh, during the 1900s. So the actual um, you know, <clears throat> um, chemical of Ibogaine was first synthesized or I guess isolated rather in 1901. So we've used it for multiple decades. And then somehow, despite its medical use, for I believe, if I'm refer, re recalling again, you know, it was mostly prescribed for like antidepressing, uh, prop for antidepressant properties or suppression, right, and or treatment, right, as well as um, on the side of stimulants. Um, it all of a sudden became a Schedule One drug in 1970, just like all the other suite of great things we talk about here. And again, let's remember, audience, if uh, you know you're not familiar, Schedule One means absolutely no medical or scientific value. So the fact that it went from you know use in a common marketplace to it has no medical value, no treatment, but we can do limited scientific research is just, uh, you know, for me, it's frustrating uh, just to see another parallel and lest we forget that. So here we are today, kind of resurfacing and hopefully, uh, you know, see where things go with, you know, clinical trials and whatnot going on. But that's enough for me. Yeah, absolutely, dude. And, you know, for the United States, um, again, it's Schedule 1 also in the UK. And um, it's surprisingly unregulated in some countries, you know, like, like it's been available in Brazil and New Zealand. Um, and there's like listed Ibogaine manufacturers or suppliers listed in like the Cameroon and India, South Africa, I think even Canada. But yet, you know, in the US, it's like you can use it for medical purposes as long as you don't recognize that it has medical purposes. But, you know, I, I got to wonder though. Uh, when I read research studies, people, uh, researchers are injecting it into animals and publishing papers, but I don't, I don't think people are, this is a syringe based delivery system. So, so Gene, um, you know, you're, you're out there working in the cannabis space. You study lots of different administration forms, you know, in your research about this article, what, just as like the basics of how people consume this like ancient plant, like, do they, do they smoke it? Do they do they boof it? Like what what is going on with this product? So uh, so when I just started reading about this, it's kind of like just put me down this crazy rabbit hole. And I was like looking at articles, started looking at YouTube videos. And one of the YouTube videos I came across uh, was that like this kind of like old witch doctor. I think she was like fifty three, and she was just and she's been practicing this medicine with this medicine for over forty three years, and and she was literally just eating it like chips. And like that was in like they were just like showing they were just showing how like they just uh they would take it right out the ground clean it up a little bit and they would just kind of just have it like like a centerpiece really like right in the dinner table and they just they're just eating it like chips and I'm and I'm just assuming like 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 what what is the actual dosage of that because like mm. what we have in the cannabis industry like when we are consuming uh it's all about this kind of like the bioavailability of 
uh, other cannabinoids in our system. And it's like, is it, are you actually getting 10 milligrams or are you getting three? Right. And then so and when in this article, like it's talking about how this kind of been like a national treasure in these like Central African countries or whatnot. And also places like what Canada, Canada, the Netherlands, South Africa, New Zealand, whatnot. But of course, when you get to the States, it's like ah, schedule one doesn't have any therapeutic uh, type of medicinal benefits. But but based on this article, it does. But it's also kind of like a double edged sword, really, that it's like, hey, if you take too much all of these adverse effects may, uh, may take place. And then, so like, that's what kind of like got me very curious. Like when I was seeing this video of this, like of this woman, uh, just constantly just eating these things like chips. And it's like, like what, like, what is that dosage? So that's, that's the thing that kind of got me like really interested, uh, in this. And so, uh, yeah, like I, I'm in, in terms, in terms of that is interesting. Yeah, and you bring up a great point. Is is people kept it as a centerpiece and they eat it, and even in the literature, from like looking at case reports, they talk about people would eat some every thirty minutes, and then maybe that speaks a, like to your experience with the cannabis spaces. They don't know what the dose is, so they're just gonna eat a little chip, see what happens, and then like maybe eat some more later over the course of time. Because again, we're not. I like how you talked about it. Like this sort of like. They're, they're harvesting it as agricultural product. They're not really processing it into an extract and, and, and changing the chemistry of it. Because again, it's like you're picking an apple and you're eating it. You're not turning the apple into cider and making it something completely different. So I think that that's a great concept for people is like, look, on the fundamental level, this is something people have been just harvesting for years. And now maybe the commercialization of it, extracting it, purifying it, may not be a great idea. And I think that we have to ask then, what's in Ibogaine? Is it something like, like DMT that we find in other plants? Uh, Nigam, you know, you're the PhD chemist. Uh, uh, what's in Ibogaine? What, what, what is it exactly? I mean, is it, do you just have Ibogaineoids? Is that what's in it? Like, like cannabis? <laughs> what's in this so, thing? Um, yeah, there, there are several uh, molecules that are highlighted in this paper that we're reviewing. So... Um, ibogaine is commonly discussed and referred to, but this article is highlighting three. Uh, so there's ibogaine, there's noribogaine, and there's this molecule called 18MC. And um, a few little details here. Uh, they're discussing the metabolism. So actually, when someone takes this, um, the ibogaine molecule is uh, metabolized to noribogaine. Um, so there's an interesting concept there where, you know, like so far as the pharmacology and, and the use within people and tracking it, like which molecule is doing what, how do you approach the dosing? Uh, you know, people have different, um, drug processing metabolisms. So there's some complexity, all the stuff that Gene was talking about. Um, there's some complexity there. Uh, and then additionally, what I thought was cool is they're talking about this molecule, uh, 18MC, and I would love to read off the full name, but I'm not seeing it. Uh, I'll, I'll read it in a minute. But the um, they're, they're kind of theorizing here that this the molecule 18MC is actually contributing to the therapeutic benefit uh, where this has been used a lot uh, previously before. Um, it was outlawed in Europe as well as the US. There was promise for treatment of addiction with things like alcoholism and opiate addiction. So they're they're saying in this paper that this molecule um, 18MC 
may be more useful for that, where the um, Ibogaine nor Ibogaine uh, may be more towards the uh, psychedelic or hallucinogenic effect. So um, uh, one thing that I want to say, echoing what the paper says. And um, Jehan, there's a, a second paper that, that you had shared with the group that's actually really great. It's just a brief summary about a systematic review of publications in the last five years or so. Uh, and we can post this as a supplement uh, on the show notes. But they're also just agree- pretty much agreeing with Gene that more research is needed because um, they're saying... Uh, for the different uh, populations, for the different dosing, for the different molecules. Um, There's a lot of unknowns here. So I I think that in um, the realm of, you know, quote, psychedelics that we have in this, you know, third renaissance, this medicalization that we're going through, I think Ibogaine is one we know uh, a little bit less about. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of runway um, to, to learn about it. Yeah, absolutely, Nigam, and thank you for that that overview. And when we think about these psychedelics, and it reminds me of something Sarah Jane Ward has said on our show: just because people have been doing it for thousands of years doesn't mean uh, it's a good idea or it's safe. And, and we have lots of things out there. Like I think about the cannabis all the time. Like, thank goodness it's non toxic. <laughs> like we got really lucky on that end. Oh. There's a but, yeah. oh, so, sorry to interrupt, but there's um another note that I actually wanted to say. Something that's interesting about ibogaine is that there are um certain detrimental effects that can last beyond the experience, the acute experience, and one of the big ones is uh, cardiovascular effects. So it is something that for people seeking therapy, um, you, you got to be careful with these substances. It's not that you know psychedelics are you know just automatically safe or because at a low dose they're safe uh it doesn't mean that because a psychedelic is deemed safe at a certain dose that doesn't mean all psychedelics are safe that doesn't mean they're safe at higher doses so it's really important um for folks who are, who are going down this road through whatever route they're seeking their therapy um that they're aware of what health conditions they have and what uh can and what issues may come up so even with like psilocybin there's known um, effects uh, on the cardiovascular system. It's a it's a minor effect compared to the psychedelic effect of 5-HT2A, but yet it's still there, and researchers are abundantly aware of it, and even trying to avoid it with like future synthetic molecules. So that is something that uh, is noted in both these papers. We're talking about that mm. there are certain detrimental effects that are already known. Yeah, absolutely. And I think most of the severe issues have to do with what you'd think they'd have to do with, and that's multiple medication use. So in um, you know, in the adverse events, you know, case reports, uh, there's like, okay, yeah, someone shows up um in a place where it's not really regulated on Ibogaine. Maybe they administer a benzodiazepine, something to quell the anxiety, maybe an antipsychotic. Uh, maybe maybe an anticonvulsant, um, but in, there has been like one or two fatalities reported. But when you read them, it's like, okay, they were on naloxone, a vasopressor, and morphine. But <laughs> they took ibogaine. I'm sorry to laugh, but it just like when I read that case report, I'm like, yeah, you're gonna have a bad time. Like you should probably proceed with a little caution there 
if you're on multiple medications that have different ways to metabolize different effects, and now you're adding a fourth thing uh, to, to the mix in your liver, um, you know, buck, buckle up and, and take precautions because it just, it, it seems like you could have a, an acute short-term bad time, or you could have a, a long-term bad time. And I think this is one thing Ibogaine kind of has to, a hurdle it has to jump over because when you look at some of the animal data, it's not, it's not that great. I mean, in terms of like human research, it is. And this maybe might be an area where getting patients involved, because we look at the animal research, we're like, gosh, it does this to animals. Gosh, it does that. But if you talk to someone who's really struggling with a the condition, they might be, some of those side effects might be acceptable to them if it meant that they won't smoke cigarettes anymore. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, and I think that's an interesting question. I mean, um, you know, Gene, I'm not sure uh, how much uh, involvement you have with the consumer or the customer side of your company, but you know, a lot of people come and you try different cannabis products, and there's a process to that. They find ones they like, they find the ones they don't like. Um, you know, and I, I guess I, if you could give us a little bit of the patient perspective in terms of what what do patients look for. Or, or at least from your experience, they're looking for a product that they know what's in it. Because you kind of mentioned like, oh, about the dosing thing. I was wondering if you could just revisit that. And I guess my question is, is do you think knowing the dosing and what you're getting in Ibogaine could reduce adverse events and side effects? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Because I, I think it's like once we kind of have that, uh, that universal confidence in cannabis uh, products or whatnot, like you know if you take five milligrams, milligrams feels like or whatnot um and in any type of form because because we we all know especially like uh like Megan with right product development like you know it's going to be slightly different if you're like making a chocolate or a gummy or a chocolate cake or a brownie like it, it varies so uh so differently so um so i think if if we kind of had even more confidence in in this type of drug and understanding dosage and understanding that it's like if you uh, if you take this much, like this, this is what it should do or whatnot. If you kind of go over that limit, then you're going to start experiencing these, uh, these type of adverse effects. It's kind of almost the same thing. It's like, if you take too much ibuprofen or whatnot, like it, it would experience, like you start experiencing like, uh, adverse effects. So kind of having like that understanding a little bit more, one of the reasons why more research is, uh, is needed for all of these type of emerging markets, uh, would, would help the consumer, uh, digested, pun intended, will, will, will help digest this information a little bit easier. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I'm going to just mention one thing from the article, uh, the Dark uh, Classics in Neuroscience and Ibogaine. They have this section that um, uh, from Brazil where it's not really regulated. I guess people can kind of access it. I'm not Brazilian. I haven't been to Brazil. But from what I read... It sounds awfully easy to get ibogaine compared to the United States, um, but uh, 22 users of ibogaines were, were said that they're basically they break it down to three phases. The first 48 four to eight hours after consumption um, is intense emotional, cognitive, and perceptual feelings. Then gradually that decreases following the eight to twenty hour phase, phase two, and then. Days one through three are considered the third phase where the subjects have a, quote, perceived return to normal. And um, 
I don't remember the last time I took three days off. I can't, I can't imagine um, that as well. But uh, you know, when we think about using substances, their risks, their benefit, and we're talking, you know, we're having a little fun talking about ibogaine. But you know, there's there are other issues and other vulnerable populations out there, and one of them has to do with vulnerable cannabis users. And sometimes we talk about. You know, sometimes people joke cannabis has no side effects. Well, that might be true for a lot of people who are healthy normals, as we might call it in research space, who consume cannabis and they're like, I'm not losing my job. I just got a raise. I'm going to celebrate with some cannabis. Like, you know, oh, this helps me engage. But there are issues with unhealthy use. And this article from Addictive Behaviors um, is entitled Getting High to Cope with COVID 19. They're modeling associations between the demand for cannabis, coping mechanisms, cannabis use, and associated issues. And to cut a long story short, of course, like every drug abuse study, they didn't actually look at use. They looked at conceptual theoretical use, but that they wanted to get a sense of was how much did were people use, you know, basically what they sussed out was people who uh, were using a lot of cannabis pre-COVID used even more during COVID to cope with you know, stress. And at some level, you might think, well, that's better than drinking. Well, the researchers thought of that, looked at drinking, said, oh, wow, if you use cannabis and alcohol together in a pandemic, staying home, not leaving, you might use more of those substances. So, um, you know, Nigam, I want to go to you first. I know that we've talked a lot about these articles, there's part of me that feels like this is the department, you know, the department of, oh, that's interesting. And part of me is like, this is from the department of horribly obvious. And like, why did you publish this? You certainly wrote a lot of pages about something that could have been described in one page. Um, your thoughts on the article? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I think the thing that was most interesting to me was when I saw the, the title of the article... Um, I didn't realize that it was going to be so economically based. Um, so uh, that, that's a great point, Nigam. And 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 just to jump in there, like that's a big factor. Of this study is they're looking at people whose cannabis use increase, but these are people who during the pandemic were making eighty thousand or more dollars a year in U.S. dollars. It's like. They, they could afford $600 an ounce or whatever the going rate is for cannabis. I, I, I don't know. I hear it's, it's quite expensive out there in the regulated market. But um, at least in like California or some areas, people are, are spending a lot of money, but it's maybe because they have the money, not like they're using their, their government dole to like pay for cannabis. But, yeah. No, no, that's, that's a great point. So um, I, I thought the... Uh, economic angle was interesting and it kind of you know it's what it kind of reminded me of it reminded me of sitting in high school economics class and learning about elastic and inelastic demand and just like thinking about uh you know how people consume or are willing to spend um and it's just funny to think about you know 15 years ago I'm learning about gas and now it's like it's not gas it's wheat you know so um yeah, I I don't um yeah, I don't it, it, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. It's like this is an economic article. It talks about this marijuana purchase task, this MPT. 
looking at behavioral economic demand. But you know, there's only one person here, I think, that actually works at a cannabis company like full time. So, you know, Gene, one of the things I want to ask you about this article is there seems to be a weakness to the article because they describe cannabis in terms of of hits of quote unquote marijuana, whatever marijuana is. I don't know anyone who uses that term anymore professionally. But I just started to think like that sounds so antiquated. Cause and I just want to say like how limiting is it just to look at in terms of hits of marijuana, like people inhaling it? I feel like anyone in any state that has regulated products is going to have a huge diversity of administration forms and products types beyond just dried flour. And I was just wondering if you could kind of comment to that. Like, should they have included edibles in here? Should they have included uh, topicals? Like, like all of oh, it, some of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all of it, really, because if you if you're going to kind of have the study where people are necessarily, quote unquote, bored or whatnot, they want to take more <laughs> cannabis is that it's like, why would you just go with smoking? Of course, like if you're if you're bored, you're going to start exploring other different forms of administration. And and with um, especially if you just think about like uh, kind of the quote unquote can of curious, they're going to be looking at edibles looking at more discreet uh discreet functions because like, they, they don't want to like smoke out their house no one wants to kind of hot box their house like while they're while they're on uh zoom meetings all the time so so of course they're uh great like, point let, let me, great point <laughs> like so like of course let me let me have edibles let me have something in my tea or whatnot so i i feel as though like this article uh if it's going to be this long-winded at least put more things in it like like your edibles and topicals and all these other like innovative products that people are making now uh because then then you kind of start to explore where it's like okay these people have the money to afford these things like let's at least explore it and see what that's doing with people and like did like did this increase it's decreased and more than likely probably smoking decrease and edibles increase but it's like it's not necessarily talking about that but i think that would have been a good like research point to talk about just all the innovative products that are out there, did that actually increase or whatnot? So, uh, I think that's something that they miss. Yeah, that's a such a brilliant point, Gene. Like, how did did the more important question is did use trends shift? Because just looking at people inhaling cannabis, yeah, I would say like if everyone's home, then there's no time where you're like, oh, my neighbors are gone. I'm going to use cannabis because I don't want to upset them by them smelling smoke or alarm anyone seeing smoke, you know, and. And, and, you know, I lived in Brooklyn for a while. We, we used to call them weed ninjas because you'd smell marijuana, but you wouldn't see anyone around. You just sort of smell it. And, and, you know, people don't want that, like in their apartment, they don't want that stigma. So I think you're absolutely right. If someone's home all the time, they're probably looking for other methods of administration, whether for recreation or, or just, again, not to live in a smoke-filled room. And so I think that this article kind of missed the mark on that a lot. It missed an opportunity to really find something impactful instead they they try to assign an economic value to hits of inhaled marijuana and so yeah so again uh, you might be hearing about this article uh listener about you know oh uh, coping with cannabis it, it went up but there's some some issues here in terms of the population they were looking at we're talking about people making a lot of money during a pandemic and um, seem to either be in markets where they don't have a, a, a lot of options for different products. Like, you know, some of their participants are in Nova Scotia, the Yukon, uh, Manitoba, uh, New Brunswick. 
and, and, and all these like province and territories that may not have access to diversity of products. What would have been more relevant, I think, for some of us would be let's like look at a metropolitan area like Boston, like New York City, like San Francisco, LA. How are use trends shifting? I think I think that would have been useful. Um, David, I'm going to give you a chance to to pop in with your two hemp seeds on this article, <laughs> and then we're going to go to the game. <laughs> How exciting. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, you, you, you kind of started with a good point there. Jahan called out, the obvious in some ways in terms of, well, are we all surprised? You know, how, how many pages and words do you need to describe the results of this uh, kind of fundamental study? And, you know, some of the additional flaws I don't believe we touched on in terms of it was looking at the first 30 days post COVID. Well, I don't know if you guys remember back to that, you know, ages ago now, right? This is like, you know, pre-apocalypse days of you know, what was March and April like of 2020 versus... So, uh, David, yeah. you bring up a good point. The first 30 days of COVID for me started on February 1st. <laughs> I don't know about other people. Some people started in December. Yeah, they're they're yeah. looking at this April thing, but please like, continue. Yeah. Yeah. Like when did that start? And, you know, how, you know, even thinking about to your point, yeah. When did, you know, Alberta versus Toronto you know, or Ontario shut down? And uh, what was everything like in the first 30 days? I know it was just like shock, confusion, not a lot of certainty versus, all right, we're in this for how long now? It's August. It's October. You know, I think looking at it from that perspective too is a major miss or you know, missed opportunity, I guess, you know, based on the timing of the article, it is what it is. But that, you know, how did that change? Is 30, is the first 30 days really representative of saying COVID-19 and how it felt? Because again, the COVID fatigue, right? We all, a lot of, you know, isolation fatigue. That was really talked about. I remember talking to Nigam in the fall and it's like, dude, I'm hungered down in San Francisco and haven't, you know, seen a human in, you know, weeks. Like, what's a hug? What does that feel like? What's a handshake? You know, physical touch, like that, that wasn't maybe there in April. So I think that's a lot of considerations too. And then mm. tying back to the economics, we just can't overstate that enough in terms of, yeah, these are, you know, you know, Wealthy, you know, well-off people that you know are, upper middle hundred, class, yeah, upper middle class. What's a couple of extra hundred bucks for, again? First month, is the weed store going to close? Uh, should I just stock up and start smoking? Smoke it while you got it, right? I mean, Yo, David, yeah. that's a terrific point. That actually, I want to pause there because I think that's a terrific point because that's an economic issue. Is like everything's closing down. Your in your country, province, jurisdiction, it may not have been announced yet. That cannabis was an essential service and would have been open, and and people were buying stuff like crazy to stock up because they didn't know like, oh, we're just going to stop making toilet paper now. I better buy a bunch of it. Like, nobody knew, right? Yeah. Well, and right, you know, what was the biggest takeaway of 2020, right? Especially in the U.S. market, cannabis was an essential business, and you know, I don't know if we, you know, Gene can probably, you know, he lived the one state where it was not a fully essential business in terms of adult use not yeah. being essential out of all the other states. So there, there's all that consideration. Again, I remember Denver, where they tried to shut it down. I think that lasted about six hours because the lines <laughs> were around the corner, the al- liquor and alcohol, uh, liquor and you know, cannabis stores. It's like, no, you can't do that. You cannot do that. So here we are. Yeah, absolutely. And... Uh- that's going to wrap it up. And I just want to say on this article entitled Getting High to Cope with COVID-19, all of the authors except for Dr. Amlong were from Canada. Dr. Amlong is from the University of Kansas. I want to say when it comes to cannabis, uh, you're not in Kansas anymore. It is much <laughs> broader than this paper um, looked at. I think the methods were a good idea, just poorly executed, I think, in terms of the diversity 
of the marketplace. But again, you know, I look for criticisms and I really like criticizing papers, but um, they got to publish in addiction behaviors. So um, again, uh, we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back with today's game, which we call Don't Be a Square. We understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. And we're back. Welcome to today's game, listener. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific and cultural thought. Welcome to Don't Be a Square. That's what we're calling today's game. And I'm going to take a piece of poetry, a poem. I'm going to read an excerpt from it. And, you know, Nigam, David, Gene, you are all going to have to try and guess, think through what substance was the author writing about or on while they were writing this? So this, uh, I'm going to read a section um, from a poem. Um, <laughs> and away we go. White fog lifting and falling on mountain brow. Trees moving in rivers of wind. The clouds arise. As on a wave, gigantic eddy lifting mist above teeming ferns exquisitely swayed along a green crag, glimpsed through mullion glass in valley rain. Bardic o self visitation tell not, but what seen by one man in a vale in Albion of the folk whose physical sciences end in ecology, the wisdom of earthly relations of mouths and eyes internet 10 centuries visible orchids of mind language manifest human of the satanic thistle that raises its horn symmetry flowering above sister grass daisies pink tiny bloomlets angelic as light bulbs so was the author of this on alcohol lsd opium or cannabis and i will reveal the author perhaps at the end or as a clue, depending on how you guys do. I kind of so, want the clue. You offered us the clue before. I didn't want it. I kind of want it now. You want it now? So this poem was actually read on television by Allen Ginsberg. And he was doing a little self-experiment and wrote a poem experimenting. Dude, so without we, you... Yeah. Who is yeah. that again? Sorry. Allen Ginsberg. Uh, so he wrote, he wrote this, he wrote a lot of poetry, wrote a lot of things on different substances. So the so. last line, can you say that? Is it okay so if you I'll, say that one again? Yeah, I'll read the last four part, okay. four lines of the stanza. So orchids of mind language manifest human of the satanic thistle that raises its horn symmetry 
flowering above sister grass daisies, pink, tiny, bloomlets, angelic as light bulbs. And again, this is um, it was written by Allen Ginsberg, and for five thousand scientific points, <laughs> was did he consume a alcohol when he wrote this? B LSD. C was he like taking a page out of Kubla Khan's book and smoking opium before writing poetry? Or D cannabis. I I'm ready to uh, lodge an unorthodox guess. I. I want to say that he's on LSD, but I think he's writing about opium. Um, <laughs> so, oh, wow. uh, yeah, so I, so I think the like if it was like a test and I had to like pass a test to like drive a car or whatever, um, I think I would vote opium. But as as, as what he was he had consumed when <laughs> authoring this. Right, because he's writing about. I think he's like smoking opium and like thinking about opium and like the poppies above the daisies, and he's like writing about it. But the whole rest of it before that last part that Dave zoomed in on, I really wanted it to be LSD. Um, so, so I'm hearing you, you, you have ruled out alcohol. You don't think anyone who's sipping scotch would would, would have this prose? Right. I That's, think. I don't know. I just like googled this guy. I don't. I think it's pretty boring. I think it's a pretty boring answer. You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> For, you see a picture. You see a picture of this wily looking guy. You're like, no way was he just drinking alcohol. Yeah. I and don't. maybe cannabis was too tame. It's 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 B and C. Well, cannabis wasn't the cannabis wasn't that strong back then. You know, he's not smoking hashish. She's you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, a good well, point too. I I vote opium, and I wish I was voting LSD. So you're going to go with C for now. Um, and I'm going to say that this, this, this poem by Allen Ginsberg is entitled Whale's Visitation. So Diggum, you can change your answer at the last second, but I want to go to, to uh, David or Gene. Um, you know, uh, David, I'm, I'm going to go to you first. You asked me to recite it. So now I'm going to ask you to, sit, to walk me through your, 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 how you thought through this. Like you, yeah. you hear this passage... Do you rule out alcohol immediately because it's not cracking like weird jokes and stuff like that? Or? <laughs> so I got up to grab what I will reveal as my answer uh, for a second, but uh, in a second. But uh, you know, as you read it, I was like, kind of going back to the Pacific Northwest and thinking about you know the forests and and maybe you know the Emerald Triangle, uh, the Emerald Triangle area, and was like, it's 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 cannabis. But then I was like, wait, no, because you're like, wait, the pink flowers, and I was like, so. To me, it's just clear that it's opium. That's my final answer. And then, of course, if I Google it, looking at, you know, Nigam Googling it, it was like the timing. Yeah, I don't think that was like the big hashish days, but, you know, this is the beatnik uh, kind of days. So I don't know. Could be wrong, yep. but that's my final answer. You know, Dave, I, I like your rationalization there. You know, the beatnik days, they were experimenting with stuff and art and, and writing stuff. So we have no votes for alcohol choice A, no votes for LSD so far, choice B, two right now for opium, C, and D, no votes for cannabis. So Gene, are are you going to follow everybody? Uh, Are you going to think outside the opium box? (laughs) So I'll I'll try to keep very like surface level without like Googling anything. So like just based based on like uh, the poem itself, it's like it was very descriptive. And uh, and typically when I 
been around people that was like on LSD, like they're super descriptive about everything. Everything is very vibrant. So like that, that was my first, my first thought. And then like, uh, then I was thinking about cannabis when you were talking, when you started talking about smoke and, and then so like, and then like Negan brought it back. It's like around that time, like cannabis wasn't as strong as it is now. So I'm like, okay, so it's not cannabis. And then like, I didn't think it was alcohol like an, at all. And, and then so, and then so with both like David and Negan was talking about uh, the opium, I was like, potentially, but I'm going to stick with my first thought and, and go with BLSD. Uh, it, it was a very vibrant poem. That's, so I'll, I'll stick with that. I like how you said it was descriptive. Um, very interesting. All right. Well, it's time for the big reveal. So the poem entitled Walesville t- Visit, well, the poem entitled Wales Visitation by Allen Ginsberg. Um, if you thought that his prose was too clean for consuming alcohol, that is right. He did not consume or consume alcohol while writing this. So A is not a choice. Now, if you thought maybe he was smoking the funny stuff, you know, cannabis, choice D, you were wrong. He was not consuming cannabis. So that just leaves either B or C. So in regards to this, uh, you know, I got to say, Gene, it was such a great guess. And you were right. It was B. He did oh. take LSD <laughs> and write this poem as an experiment, which he then read on national television. So good job as a first time <sighs> participant. You, you knocked it out of the park. Uh, Whale's Visitation by the, the great Allen Ginsberg was indeed an experiment where he wrote a poem after consuming a certain quantity of LSD. And, and it wasn't alcohol. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny, Nigam, uh, David, I almost chose a Kubla Khan poem that was written while he was on opium, but I decided to go with this one. Uh, but fantastic guesses. Um, I just love the way you broke down the genre, like the time frame. Like it was really great thinking. And you know what? Who's to say he wasn't also on opium? We don't know at the time. There wasn't a, you know, chemical confirmation for this experiment. Uh, all right, listener, that's our show. I hope you had a great time listening to us. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it. Um, thank you to our special guest, Gene Ray. It was great to have you on. I hope you're back again. Uh, thank you to our trusty yes. audio engineer. Thank you uh, to our cover artist. Check out the custom artwork with every episode. Thank you from Mark and Aurora. 